Welcome to Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we feature a lifelong friend of mine, Glenn Harris. Glenn was actively involved in several bands up to the mid-90s when he burned out his chops. He went on to a career in radio and is an award-winning broadcaster currently working at 1340 AM, Anacortes, Washington, KWLE, The Whale. Sit back and relax to another episode of Music Live Radio, this one entitled Radio Guy, The Glenn Harris Story. All right, welcome Glenn Harris to Music Live Radio. Glad to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Dan, for having me on. appreciate it. All right, now I'd like to let the listeners know that you and I have some history. We knew each other back in grade school, junior high, and high school time frame, and we were busy running around doing all sorts of naughty things like playing Dungeons and Dragons in churches, and of course, computer games were on the forefront back in, the, in those uh, days, in the 80s, I guess that's what I'm talking about, and, uh, and of course, we were watching uh, early music videos, like on, uh, what was that, Night Flight or Night Tracks? I can't remember the show. I think it was Night Tracks, yeah. Yeah, like a precursor to MDV, or uh, for those that didn't have cable, that was what we uh, had to watch back yeah. in those days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you remember from those days? Oh, man. Uh, well, first and foremost, our D&D sessions. Uh, it was... A lot of those sessions were held in, as you mentioned, the uh, the church. It was in Covington, Washington, a little place called Four Corners. And at that time, it was, you know, just a couple of uh, intersecting, very primitive roads. And I think at that intersection, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, there was a small uh, church with an attic, and that was where we had our, our D&D games. And I think an, an Albertson's grocery store, and that was about it. Uh, if you look at Covington these days, it's one big strip mall. It's incredibly developed. Uh, looks very odd, but uh, I was just there recently. Yeah, th- those games were fantastic, and, and we had a lot of uh, a lot of games where we would do sleepovers at friends' houses, so we could play all night. Uh, Lee Gladen, Eric Anderson, uh, those friends of ours were the the uh, the the hosts that did the most. I think. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think uh, Eric was probably the best DM that we had uh, among our group. Oh, yeah. Very good. Very creative and uh, inspirational. In that group, uh, there was, what, seven of us, six or seven of us? And uh, Jim Hudson, he and I uh, stayed very close friends throughout uh, high school and college. And he and I actually ended up being uh, best man for each other's weddings. Yeah, that's excellent. (laughs) Yeah, it was, uh, and and he and I, we we still correspond to this day. He's come out to visit us, and we're he's living in Wisconsin right now. We're looking forward to a chance to get out and see him, but he's still uh, still gaming quite a bit. Uh, I can't really speak for much of the other group. I know that you're still gaming. Yeah, doing computer games and the occasional uh, 
uh, tabletop RPG. I, I kind of created my own that's based on Dungeons and Dragons, but incorporates rock and roll trivia. And I uh, host that about every six months with my uh, rock band buddies. Oh man, that is awesome. Yeah. yeah uh, just uh, not too long ago, uh, invited you to a private group on Facebook that I kind of sort of managed nerd release. Uh, and I was able to contact Eric and contact Ken Martin and now we have kind of getting the band to get back together again for this uh, for this group. There's one member of the group that has passed away, unfortunately. That was Simon Britnell. He passed away a few years ago from a, uh, a blood poisoning uh, disease. Yeah, horrible. But, yeah, uh, but the uh, Britnell family keeps close contact with us. And we're actually up a few years ago to uh, see Cassandra Britnell, Simon's uh, sister, who had moved to San Diego to work for a telecom company. And they were heading back to New Zealand and decided to spend a day hanging out with the, uh, the Harris family, which was fun. Oh, very nice. That's yeah. Cool. Well, let's get right into it. Uh, on Music Live Radio, we like to delve into people's life stories. Um, of course, your main career right now is in radio, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is we haven't had anybody that's been in the radio business the proper radio business, terrestrial radio, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> lots of podcast folks. Um, and I'm really interested to, uh, to ask you some questions specifically about that. But before we do that, obviously you grew up in the Seattle region, uh, mostly in Auburn, if I r- recall, but where did you grow up and what kind of music were you listening to? What were your folks listening to? What was inspiring you in those early days when we were running around? Great question, Dan. Uh, lifelong resident of Washington state. I was born in Seattle, uh, and I grew up in, uh, Seattle, uh, Port Orchard, Kennewick, Vancouver, uh, Kent, and then later Auburn. And, uh, as a small child, I listened to, uh, basically what my parents liked at the time, stuff like Doobie Brothers, Seals and Crofts, Cat Stevens, Eagles, and a lot of fifties rock. Now in the mid 1970s, we moved out to Kent. And at that time I spent a lot of time, well, listening to my parents' Beatles collection and the and it's the local NPR station, which played a lot of classical music, some very early big band, like some swing stuff. And they also aired a lot of British radio shows like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I was really digging on that. Still do to this day. So in the 1980s, we moved to Auburn. And uh, aside from an occasional pop group, I was pretty much listening to, to classical and jazz. It really wasn't until late in college that I discovered and gained an appreciation for things like classic rock. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Now, when did you start playing music and what got you interested in uh, doing that? Oh, I think it must've been the fourth grade. Okay. There was an assembly where music teachers would, you know, show off their students and then demonstrate what each, te- what each uh, instrument did, you know, an effort to recruit would be musicians for the next classes. Now I had been playing piano since second or third grade. And I tell you what, I hated it because I wanted to be a rock and roll keyboard player. Wow. I, was hear- I was hearing all this prog rock and all these wonderful sounds coming out of keyboards, but the piano only made one sound. I was like, okay, this is no, bu- <laughs> this is no bueno. Uh, so what happened was during the assembly, the string teacher picked up an acoustic bass and started doing the typical blues bass. And, boom, 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 boom. and I thought to myself, this is my salvation. <laughs> this is what I can learn to get out of my piano lessons. Uh, so I, I started learning bass, I think, in the fifth grade, uh, though I still had to take piano lessons for a couple more years. 
Yeah, I had a similar experience. I, I remember playing piano at an early age. Then I ended up picking up the trombone, I think around fifth grade, but that thing was bigger than I was at the time. You were and, a boner? <laughs> yes, I was a boner, but not for very long. And uh, I, and just hauling that thing back to and from uh, school, you know, I had about a half mile walk down to the bus station. I just said, no, I, then I put it away. <laughs> yeah. You know, f- for many, many years, the really, the only downside to playing acoustic bass was hauling that gear around. Uh, and, and I had to invest in, in SUVs just to get my gear, you know, transported from place to place. It was very hard to, to do that. Uh, especially during the times when I didn't have motor transport available. But yeah, you know, piano is a very, I think still to this day, I think that it's a very important instrument to start music on. It, it provides you, well, not only an appreciation for music, but it, it gives you a, well, it, it teaches you the relationship between a melody and a harmony. And that is, I think, one of the one of the key things to music. And we'll get into that later. But piano is a great starting instrument. I think if, if I had kids... I would say, yeah, learn piano first. And then once you become a little proficient in that, move on to other instruments and, you know, expand your horizons. Oh, absolutely. So you were probably playing in the uh, elementary and uh, junior high bands. Tell us a little bit about your experiences in the school bands. And then what led you to go off and start playing in the high school bands? Ah, well, let's see. In elementary, it was just a small orchestra and an orchestra, I say with air quotes, it was maybe six or seven kids, just very basic stuff. And when we moved on to junior high, I got into the orchestra there, which was larger, obviously. There are more people interested in in learning stringed instruments. And uh, we did a little, you know, we did did a lot of great orchestral stuff and uh, got into the wind ensemble a little bit because wind ensemble pieces occasionally have parts for string bass. Usually they're doubling tuba or bass clarinet or something like that. Uh, but occasionally they have uh, uh, pieces or, or uh, parts that are specifically for string bass. So I got a little experience with, with wind ensembles at that point. Uh, went on in, uh, well, gosh, uh, junior high started getting into a couple of garage bands, which I continued on in high school with some friends of mine and ended up playing a lot of things like, uh, oh gosh, some hard rock and punk stuff and uh, surf music for some reason, surf rock. Any uh, favorite moments from any of those bands? Uh, The only one I can think of off the top of my head here is Junior High Orchestra. We grabbed three music stands, put them, stacked them up on top of each other. And we're talking about those, you know, those, those, black matte black music stands that every school has stacked them on top of each other in some strange configuration and we called it modern art we called it the three nudes <laughs> basically at that point you know you could call anything the three nudes yeah <laughs> you know grab two you know beer cans and a uh, a vix vapor inhaler stick them together you can call it the three nudes <laughs> modern art man it's great so where did you go to college And what did you study? I went to college at Central Washington University in Ellensburg, Washington, uh, starting in 1998. I studied music performance with a minor in anthropology. 
I had wanted to study archaeology as a minor. Wanted to do it since elementary school. Uh, since third grade, I was uh, looking at Egyptology, college-level Egyptology books. And I wanted a minor in it, but the classes conflicted, the ar uh, archaeology classes conflicted with my music studies. So I had to opt for anthropology. I also spent some time uh, dabbling in philosophy as a possible dual minor. What did you take away from music, studying music formally? What is the most important thing that helped you as a musician? It helped me appreciate why the music that I listen to and what everybody listens to, you, me, everybody, uh, what that evokes as an emotional response. Check this out. It's all about the music theory. Now, you start with a melody, one line, one instrument, pretty much boring and something that no one will likely buy as a single on iTunes, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Okay, now add another line of music, bass, vocals, whatever. The frequencies line up in a way that's pleasing to the brain. It's called harmony. It's a tonal, it's, it's, it's a mathematical equation, tonal mathematical equation that has an effect on our emotions. Now, with that said, consider this. Uh, Bach's well-tempered clavier. It sounds pretty boring to a lot of modern ears because his music represents tonal mathematics in a pure form. Everything, the frequencies, they all line up just right. Mm -hmm. Now, let's fast forward to the blues. Take a, a B-flat major chord, okay? Sure. Add a flat seventh, and the math just doesn't line up. It's a little discordant. Now you feel a little naughty. <laughs> okay, add a ninth to that chord, or God forbid a tenth, especially if you put the tenth in the, in the bass line, you know, B-flat major chord with a tenth in the bass. Now, now what you hear is even more risky, and, you know, frankly, people tend to like a little bit of risky, right? Yep. It's an emotional, guilty pleasure. Mm. Composers during the avant-garde music movement, say in the 50s and 60s, they relied on tonal mathematics, but including elements that didn't fit into the equations, which is why music during that period sounds so disjointed and nonconformist. Mm -hmm. And it was a big craze because it was such a reversal from what you know, uh, preceded it. Modern music follows the same principles. You take what works tonally, and you add something that doesn't fit mathematically to evoke a specific emotional response. Uh, blues tunes uh, and any song if you want to solicit a feeling of sadness, you change it to a minor key because a minor key is a little discordant. It, the mathematics, the tonal mathematical equation just doesn't quite line up quite right. I mean, for, for years, uh, we're talking early, early music, uh, the tritone was considered taboo. They called it Diablos en Musica, the devil in music. The augmented third, and it took years for composers to embrace the idea of the augmented third, and that's being incorporated into a lot of uh, music from, gosh, uh, 20th century and the 21st century. So what I'm what I took away from from studying music was really the relationship between melody and harmony and how it creates an emotional response to the listener. Well, very, very good. Very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's all about the math, man. Yeah. Now, there was a lot of really good music going on uh, during your college time. Uh, what do you remember, besides of what you were actually playing in, what, other, what bands from around that time were you really getting into? <laughs> well, uh, you know, 80s pop, 
90s pop. There's a lot of great stuff that you know was going on at that time. And I remember one band that came out of Ellensburg called uh, the Screaming Trees. Remember them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mark Lanigan and, yeah. and the Connor Brothers. Screaming Trees, they busted out on the music scene about the same time that one of my bands, Otis Elevator and the Shafts, did. We had the same recording engineer, the same manager, same booking guy. We played a lot of the same venues, and uh, they went on to a stellar career. Uh, I mean, they were on MTV, and, well, we weren't. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's just th- there were so many bands. It's it's hard to re- hard to remember. Everything seems to be a blur during college, as it is for a lot of people. Uh, but well, tell us the story of uh, Otis Elevator and the Shafts. Otis Elevator and the Shafts. Yeah, we were one of the first groups to do the whole horn funk soul revival thing that was very popular in the early 1990s, especially among college kids, and it was. Pretty much us, Crazy Eights out of out of Oregon, and groups from Seattle like uh, Jumbalassi, Almighty Dread, uh, and that movement evolved into bands like uh, Mighty Mighty Bostones, and we uh, we did a lot of gigs around uh, Central Washington, did a lot of gigs in Eastern Washington. We were the house band at a place in Seattle called Lockstock and Bagel up in the UW district. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the things we did there was we would do a cover of uh, Paul Simon's Late in the Evening. And we'd do this this percussion breakdown and start a conga line from the stage. We would go out the... And the horn players would join this conga line. They'd go out the back door, around the block, and come back in the front door. And we'd do this for like 10 minutes. And people went cuckoo for it. They went nuts. Can anybody tell me what's happened to this land? What once was lush and living is now a world of sand. And stranded in the wasteland, and blinded by the sun, one billion.
Yeah, that uh, that group was a lot of fun to uh, a lot of fun to be in. I was the second bass player for the group. Uh, Doug DeBruin was the original bass player, but he left after about a year or two. And I was with the group right up until the uh, the band broke up. Uh, we had well, I'll give you a quick story about that. The we did a gig over at I think Wazoo, uh, WSU in Spokane, and I had driven the saxophone player our lyricist and lead songwriter drove him over uh, that day. We did the gig and that gig, Oh boy, that gig, um, it was a frat gig and Oh, about halfway through that gig, uh, it was in a basement in a frat and halfway through the gig, there was an open window at ground level and some guy from a competing or neighboring frat decided, you know what? It's time to put it into this gig. So he, <laughs> yeah, he, he pissed through the window. Oh, lovely. Uh, onto our rented mixing board and uh, my, and my amplifier. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, after, after the gig, I said to our, our sax player, I said, Eric, I'm going back, going back to Ellensburg tonight. Uh, you want to go back with me? It's like, no, I'll, I'll, I'll stay here the night and I'll go back with my sister. And the following day, he uh, hopped on the highway with his sister and uh, he was driving her back to Seattle. They got as far as the, uh, the North Bend exit halfway up I-90 and got hit head on by a drunk driver. It uh, killed her and put him in a coma for a couple of months. And that was the, uh, the end of the band. Wow. Yeah. Sad story. Yeah, but you know, we had some we had some really good points there along our tenure. And we played Bumbershoot on the old KXRX stage in Seattle. And we also got an opportunity to submit a song for the soundtrack for a movie called Nervous Ticks. Hmm. It was a Bill Pullman film early 19 or mid 1990s. Uh we had we had submitted the song. This is right around the time that we got our record deal with IRS Records. And well, we we knew that our song was not going to be included in the soundtrack when the producer's wife sent back a suggestion that we change some of the lyrics to uh, "I'm stumped, let's hump." <laughs> yeah, not exactly what you were going for, huh? Not quite <laughs> what we had written. So <laughs> now you also had an endorsement from the uh, Otis Elevator Company, correct? Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, we had it's one of those gigs over at Lock, Stock, and Bagel, and we got this surprise visit from a representative of the Otis Elevator Company. And we're like, "Oh boy, are we in trouble? You know what's going on here?" And he said, "No, the company loves what you guys are doing." <laughs> so yeah, we got a, we got an endorsement from an elevator company of all things. I don't think I, I can't think of any other band that has an endorsement or had an endorsement from an elevator company. Yes, very interesting. <laughs> so now you were uh, in another band called Echo Canyon. Talk about uh, that band a bit. Oh man, Echo Canyon. Yeah, that was a interesting group. It was well, uh, basically uh, five classically trained musicians, all doing jazz in college. So our class, we're training training classical music. We're doing jazz in college. We all had this penchant for uh, Frank Zappa. And we just said, hey, let's get a country group together. <laughs> so we uh, 
at one point we did gigs all over the place, but at one point we were the house band at a country bar called the, the Buckboard in Ellensburg. And after we established the presence of the Buckboard, we'd start screwing with the audience. <laughs> so get this, we'd do an entire set, say in the key of D <laughs> or an entire uh, set of songs as polkas or cha-chas, <laughs> all, all with musical quotes in the songs. Like, yeah. uh, like say the Munsters theme or, <laughs> or some really obscure Zappa quote. And the, here's the cool part. We were the only ones that got it. <laughs> we could do an entire set in the key of D and nobody got it. We could do an entire set as a cha-cha or a polka. Nobody got it. And, and that made it all the more fun. Oh, that just sounds awesome. We're going to do a song called Freebird. <laughs> this is our version. some other uh, notable uh, moments with that band didn't you open up for uh, somebody at the gorge uh, chris ledoux or somebody oh well that was a different group, oh, uh, different that, group yeah a uh, great uh, musician that i was uh, playing in bands with a uh, rock and pop cover band the perspectives and another country group this is this predates echo canyon a group called uh, the sahara club we originally called the sierra club then we realized that was already that name was already taken so we changed it to the sahara club we did country originals and covers and he left ellensburg went on to actually a very successful he's still doing it, a very successful career as a country singer and songwriter in nashville and he came back and uh, to ellensburg and we put this kind of group together we call it the jason howard band his middle name is howard his last name is anderson put this group together and we opened up for country superstar Chris Ledoux. It was at the amphitheater in Vantage, Washington, and it's still there today. But we we are, or we were, the first band to ever play at that venue. And we opened, and, you know, opened up for Chris Ledoux. It was supposed to be three bands. Our group, uh, Ricky Lynn Gregg and Chris Ledoux. Well, the day before the gig... Ricky Lynn Gregg broke his thumb in a car accident in New York and couldn't do the gig. So we doubled our opening set, which was a blast. Uh, I got to tell you about Chris Ledoux. This is a guy who 
Garth Brooks idolized. He he referenced him as his biggest influence, biggest musical influence. And you'd think this country superstar. I mean, he's a you know he was a world champion rodeo rider. You, mm-hmm. I mean, this this guy just he he bled country. <laughs> and you would think this guy would show up to the gig in you know Wrangler jeans, boots, and a belt buckle and a cowboy hat. No, this guy showed up. Uh, with high top tennis shoes, uh, Levi jeans, a t-shirt and a baseball cap, no belt buckle. <laughs> yeah. And uh, our band, we rented a, uh, RV and we went to pick them up at the, uh, SeaTac airport, brought them back. And these guys did two things. One, they started going gaga over the fiddle player that we had hired from the Seattle musicians union. Hmm. And we're like, okay, well, what's going on here? <laughs> well, it turns out the fiddle player that we had hired was the fiddle player for the country swing band, Asleep at the Wheel. Oh, okay. They just were like, oh my God, it's this guy. You know? <laughs> and the second thing they did was they drank all of our beer. <laughs> so here we are just nervous as hell. We do this at the last minute. We're told, okay, guess what? You have to double your set before Chris goes on. And then we get back to the trailer and there's no beer. <laughs> that, that was no bueno. But you still had a good time, huh? <laughs> oh, hell yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Jason and I, we recorded a couple songs. Uh, matter of fact, I am a, I am a published songwriter. Thanks to the stuff that we did. He took some of the tracks that we had recorded and put them on his debut album. And, uh, uh, it was, matter of fact, just earlier today, I was going back through a tape from 1996 or so. We had done a cover of Simon and Garfunkel's Sound of Silence about the Chevron station at the North Bend exit along I-90. Any musician who travels from eastern Washington to western Washington, they always stop in North Bend. And at that time, Chevron was really the only place to get, you know, uh, you know take a piss break or or, you know, grab some munchies as you're heading out to Seattle. So we did the song and ended up, that song ended up actually being, uh, played on the Dr. Demento show at one point. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Jason and I had a blast. We still keep in touch. Going up the pass again. Have to stop here at North Bend. And my eyes are getting murky Think I'll get myself some jerky
Any other notable bands in college or post-college, I should say? Uh, in college, I think one of the most notable bands for me was the Central Washington University first jazz band. We had three jazz bands, first, second, third. Of course, the first was the one for the, for the top tier musicians. And it was the, the class, I guess if you could call it a class, was taught by John Mowat. Great, great professor. Uh, but John Mowat, we called him coach because he didn't want to teach. He wanted to coach. This was more like a team of musicians than an actual class. And auditions for the first jazz band could last up to a month once school started. Hmm. And we played some fantastic gigs with some great, great headliners. Uh, Jigs Wiggum, uh, jazz trombone player, springs immediately to mind. You would love Jigs. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, again, all top-tier musicians. Uh, <laughs> Coach... He would say the most unusual thing. I mean, he was just like a walking non sequitur. You would walk into the men's room to go take a leak, and he'd walk into the men's room next to you, stand at the stand at the urinal next to you, and just after a few seconds of silence, you go, "So, uh, want to see my scar?" <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. And, yeah. What, and what was the general reaction to that comment? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think you can imagine. Um, <laughs> Kind of a, oh, coach. <laughs> yeah, uh, wonderful, wonderful man. I mean, he's just incredible. And he, he fostered such great development for everyone under his wing over so many years. Uh, he passed away a few years ago, and, and he is, to this day, he is a legend at Central Washington University. He's just, just such a wonderful teacher. Mm. And I, I, I really appreciate that I was given an opportunity to to learn music under a lot of great teachers talk about the uh, experience you had playing on a cruise ship because that would have been right around that time too right? Oh, okay yeah yeah it was the, it was the mid-1990s i auditioned for and got a job with carnival cruise lines and i was playing on a boat called the tss festival based out of san juan puerto rico uh, the boat did a seven-day caribbean cruise so five island stops one day at sea and then back to san juan to take on new passengers now, I was playing in a group called the Cross Current Orchestra, which was unique among Carnival's bands. The, the, the modus operandi for Carnival was bands were named after the boats they were on. So if you're on the, uh, uh, the Fantasy, it would be the, the Fantasy Orchestra. So we were, you know, Cross Current Orchestra on the festival, and we played, get this, we played in an auditorium at the front end of the ship called the Copacabana Lounge. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I played in the Copacabana. How about that? <laughs> Thank you, Barry Manilow. <laughs> yeah, we, we did uh, uh, Vegas ty uh, type of shows, complete with dancers. We also provided backup for visiting singers and comedians. Uh, one singer who appeared regularly was Duke Daniels, who was one of the original platters. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so about every other week we were playing Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Uh, we also provided musical accompaniment for like a weekly passenger talent show. And on top of that, we did midnight jazz concerts at a bar at the back of the ship. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh man, that was a hoot. Now, what were your hours like? Were you, was that pretty much all evening work or were you doing? Well, it was, um, I would say we worked about 20 hours a week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not too shabby. <laughs> and, and, and you, you, but it was pretty stressful in that if you couldn't play your part, 
there was 50 or so people waiting in line to take your place. Ah, uh, okay. So, okay. yeah. So you can't do a lot of clams while you're doing your performance. <laughs> no, yeah. no clams. Uh, yeah, when you got on the stage, it was pretty stressful. And, and for like the Vegas shows, you had to play along with a click track in your headphones. Uh, and there were a lot of, a lot of tempo changes and uh, time signature changes. It really went fast-paced. And if you couldn't nail it, you were gone. Uh, but outside of that, it felt like a paid vacation. Yeah. And, and I got to see a part of the world that I probably would have never seen. And where was this? Uh, Puerto Rico and other, what other places? Oh, gosh. Puerto Rico, St. Thomas, St. Martin, Martinique, Dominica, places like that. So you'd get to go on excursions while uh, when the ship pulled into those ports. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the performances that we did were in the evenings. Yeah, yeah. So during the day, you know, in the morning, the boat would arrive, you know, early morning before everybody got up, the boat would arrive, say, at St. Thomas. So we, you know, we wake up and hey, we're at St. Thomas. So we'd be able to get off the boat and, you know, say go shopping along the in St. Thomas, for example, right where the cruise ships dock, they've got this this avenue, this long avenue of jewelry stores. And we were told that a best way to keep your paycheck without having to spend it is invested in gold. Ah. So, so we all bought gold jewelry when we were in St. Thomas to keep us from spending it. <laughs> uh, yeah. On things like, uh, well, uh, booze, yeah. it, which was also great for us because whenever Duke Daniels would show up after our gigs with him, he would take us to the disco in the back of the boat and buy us rounds of drinks until, you know, we couldn't stand anymore. And places like St. Uh, Martin, they've got great casinos. And I would go there with the leader of our group, the leader of our band, Steve Barranco. And I got something interesting to tell you about him. But uh, Steve and I would go there. He loved the blackjack. Mm. And, you know, one weekend for or one week, for example, we'd go to uh, there, go to the casinos, just opening up. I mean, early, early morning hours, just got off the boat. We went to one casino, and he, you know, he's just losing his shirt at the blackjack, blackjack table. And me, thinking frugally, okay, well, I'm just going to play some quarter slots. I, you know, pop a quarter into a slot machine, pull the handle, and I get a $250 payout. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> so, so I just sit there and wait until Steve's done. He's, he's lost basically half his paycheck. He's like, okay, Glenn, we got to go across the street to the other casino. They're just opening up. He really wants to make his money back. We go across the street. He's just playing the, playing the table like crazy. He loses basically the rest of his paycheck. I put about another dollar's worth into a quarter slot machine. Another $250 payout. <laughs> oh, blind luck, huh? I cash out. He's broke. I'm going to buy myself some guava berry liqueur. <laughs> yeah.
Steve Barranco, I got to tell you about this guy. He's wonderful sax player, incredible sax player, great flute player too. Now he is the guy who is responsible for Kenny G. Ah. If anyone has a beef about Kenny G, you can thank Steve Barranco for that. <laughs> okay, here, here's the backstory. Steve was uh, playing saxophone for the uh, Jeff Lorber Fusion Group. This is early 1980s. Jeff Lorber pioneered the, the jazz fusion movement. And he was playing sax for Jeff Lorber. And at one point, he was offered a teaching gig over at Mount Hood Community College in Oregon. He said, Jeff, I, I can't keep doing this gig. We've got tour schedule and all that. I just I can't keep the schedule up. I've got to go teach. But I've got a saxophone player out of Washington you might be able to use. His name is Kenny Gorlick. Well, he hired Kenny Gorlick, who went solo a few years later, became Kenny G, and there we go. Oh man, we gave we gave Steve such a <laughs> such a hard time about that. It's like ah okay. I mean, once once he let it known that he was the one that unleashed Kenny G on the world. <laughs> oh man, Kenny G. He was one of those guys that in college, among us musicians, our uh, the jazz musicians, we would. At uh, parties, we would routinely grab old Kenny G CDs, yeah. nuke them in the microwave, and then <laughs> toss them out into the yard. That was our that was our fun. I mean, the guy only had, it still has, only about an octave and a half range. It's like, eh, it's yeah. the difference between jazz and jazzy. Yeah. He was he was jazzy. <laughs> yeah. So you were busy playing in all sorts of bands. What happened to your hands, and why did you have to quit playing music? Oh, man. Um, in a nutshell, I burned out my chops from playing in too many groups at the same time. You know, each genre of music has its own physical demands on a musician. And chances are you won't find a guitar player, for example, who shreds in a bar on the weekends and then plays classical you know, recital music in the middle of the week. And the same goes for bass players like me. Uh, boy, by the time I burnt out, in the mid, you know, mid late 1990s, I was playing in two orchestras, one symphony orchestra, a wind ensemble, two vocal jazz groups, two jazz big bands, a rock band, a country band, you know, four established jazz combos, a few at the moment jazz combos, you know, okay, I got a gig coming up, uh, can you play for me type of thing. Yeah. The odd studio gig, plus I was doing my own four track recording efforts. So by 1996, Here's what happened. I had tendonitis in both arms, carpal tunnel in one wrist, and tennis elbow in the other arm. <laughs> We're talking months of physical therapy. And by that time, you know, obviously I started being a little more selective about what gigs I would play. And unfortunately, it got a response from a lot of jazz musicians of, well, you don't want to play, do you? Uh, I mean, that that's the part that hurt more than the physical pain. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I gave all these guys everything I could, gave them 100% or as, you know, as football coaches would say, I gave them 110%. I burned my chops out. And then these people come back and say, well, yeah, you don't want to play. Yeah. Yeah, I do want to play. I can't. I physically can't play. So the last gig I did, I think it was in the summer of 97, uh, just before... Uh, Tracy and I moved out to Anacortes. Uh, it was, I think, a jazz combo gig at a coffee house. 
and the rest of the band, they were all Central Washington University faculty members. Did a lot of jazz gigs with faculty members, including the, the college president, who was uh, a great, great uh, jazz clarinet player. Now, that gig, you know, it was physically painful to go through, but, you know, I needed to do one last gig before I started my life over as a full-time radio person on the other side of the state. With that said, I still got all my bases, try to pick up the instrument every once in a while, run a few scales, you know, try to remind my hands that they once did something pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you get into radio? And uh, tell us about the beginning of your involvement with radio. Well, okay. Well, um, again, mid nineties, the 93 or 94, uh, I was playing in a country band at the time. We had landed a gig at the Kittitas County fair and rodeo in Ellensburg. And we, it wasn't a headlining gig or anything. It was just, you know, local band taking up the stage to fill some time during the afternoon. A few songs into our set, the drummer, he needed to adjust his snare drum. The snares came loose from the bottom of his drum. And he said, Hey, Glenn, say something, would you? <laughs> so I just grabbed a microphone and I kind of patted as best I could until we were ready to play again. And as it turns out, the general manager at the local radio station, uh, KXLE, which is, I think to this day, an AM FM combo station, country on the FM side, and a news talk sports station on the AM side. He was in the audience. A couple of weeks later, he called me up, asked me to come into the station to voice a couple of commercials. I came in. Redwood was put in front of me, then headed home. Didn't really, you know, I didn't get paid for it. Didn't think about it. You know, just happy to help out. Now, the following spring, he called me back, asked me that I, you know, come into the station. I went in. I chatted with him for oh, about a half an hour about music and commercials and such. And I walked out with the station's production, direct, uh, production director job. So while I was there uh, at the station, I also became the sidekick on the FM's morning show and eventually became the program director and morning news anchor on the AM side of the station. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I was there until hmm, the fall of 97. Uh, Rich Carr, the GM. This is kind of cool. He invited my girlfriend, Tracy, and I to dinner at his house one night and presented me with this new production software to play with. And he revealed to me that he was purchasing a minority stake in a radio station in Anacortes. And this was the software they used to create ads. He also said, he was moving there, and part of the purchase agreement was that he could appoint his own program director, meaning me. Huh. So Tracy and I thought it over for about a week, and then decided him to, you know, to, decided to join him out in Anacortes. But shortly before we chose to relocate, the station's owner, who I think still owns the station, he's out of Seattle. He came out, called a staff meeting to announce changes to the staff to reflect Rich's impending departure. Uh, and later on in the day, I met privately with the owner. And when he told me that I would be promoted to a position I already had <laughs> and would be given a raise to a pay level I already had. Yeah. Yeah. It pretty much confirmed to me that a change of scenery was in order. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tracy and I, we moved to Anacortes and I started my uh, new job at KLKI the day after we got married. Oh, wow. Yeah. So no honeymoon. Uh, no immediate honeymoon. Like, no, we actually didn't go on a honeymoon until 10 years later. We went on a, uh, Alaska cruise. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, except about halfway through, we, we both of us started getting phone calls from our respective workplaces. 
Talk about a buzzkill. Jeez. <laughs> uh, so what, what exactly is a program director? Lay it out for us. Uh, what does a program director do? What are your daily uh, duties and activities? Well, in a nutshell, a program director is responsible for the programming of the station. Uh, and in the case of a music station, like the one I'm working at now, it's music selections of the day, upkeep of the overall music library, plus coordinating things like uh, special programming, interview programs, drive time shows, printing out show prep, that sort of thing. I've, I'm doing a bunch of other duties at the radio station in addition to program director, but that's kind of what a PD does in a nutshell. What are the other people that you work with? What do they do? Well, right now, the only other person I'm really working with is John Hiles. He's the uh, main host for the uh, interview program we have, The Whale Jam, which runs uh, Thursday afternoons from 5 until about 5.30. And that show highlights music from local bands like The Lonely Forest, Bellamain, The Apple War. Uh, John also, he's got incredible connections with music promoters in the area. So he's been able to get you know, some interviews, some good gets, as they say. Folks like uh, Family Force 5, the JB Quartet, fits in the tantrums. And uh, one of the great, great interviews that he had was with uh, Tommy James from Tommy James and the Shondells. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So when did you start working at this radio station? Well, uh, as I said, I moved to Anacortes to work for KLKI in 1997. And 10 years later, the station was sold. New owners, new, uh, new call letters, new website, new format, everything. We became KWLE. Yes. Okay. So that, that makes sense. Same, same basic station, but different format. Right. And you retained program director, uh, duties. Right. Yeah. Uh, program director. And, and right now I'm doing things like, uh, news director, sports director, operations manager, music director, morning show host. Special programming producer, production director, part-time engineer, IT guy, and occasional window washer. <laughs> yes, very busy. <laughs> yes, uh, it's, uh, it's a great study in small business attrition. Now, this is an AM station, but it plays, I could say, FM quality music, right? I mean, that's kind of what you're doing. Yeah, well, you know, our format, it's something akin to a Jack FM format. you familiar with Jack FM? Actually, I'm not, no. Okay, uh, basically music from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and a, a few current things. Well, our format is similar. We play more current material, but we keep that mix. Now, with Jack FM, that's a nationally syndicated format. There are stations all over the country that are running Jack FM. If you look at their playlist, it's maybe 100 songs, maybe 150. Our music library, take that same format, expand that library out to roughly 7,000 songs. Hmm. Yeah, quite a bit. Different. So, yeah, we're, we're playing a lot of rare tracks, B-sides, uh, live tracks, things that you normally wouldn't hear on, your, on, on a typical uh, AM radio station. And we get a great response from folks that are listening online because when you listen online, you get the, you get the FM quality sound in stereo as opposed to AM, which is, well, it's AM. Yeah. Yeah, that that wonderful analog mono sound. Well, when you listen online, you get this this great stereo. Who's it's what's it's? Now, who made the decision to uh, do that format? I mean, and, and expand the playlist to seven thousand songs. And obviously, you must have a big role in picking those. Well, the decision to change the format was done by the at that time new station owner, uh, Robert Uteta is his name, and. 
he wanted something that that uh, you know just was he wanted to do a mix. He likes some of the current stuff, but he loves the classic rock as well. And so we, you know, we implemented this uh, this format change. A bulk of the new music that comes in, uh, I directly take care of, and I try to include not only some of the you know new music that comes in from pop groups that are established, but also new music from you know groups that uh, are a little off the beaten path. Uh, might not be something you would normally not hear on a radio station, especially uh, out here on the West Coast. Uh, uh, great example, St. Lucia. Check them out sometime. Young band out of New York. They sound like uh, something... You know, their, their sound is, is something like if you took Wang Chung, Aha, and Tears for Fears, mashed it together, and put a nice beat to it. Wow, great group. So I do that, and I put local local bands in and uh the occasional rare track i i've added recently some old dread zeppelin stuff and uh, uh just for the sake of of um, sake of argument i put in a couple of uh, the the three tracks off of the demo uh tape that we did for otis elevator and the shafts because we we talk about that on the friday morning show quite a bit groups i was in and such and my my co-host john he keeps looking at me like, okay, well, you keep talking about Otis Elevator. You know, <laughs> I'd like to hear some, so I threw some of that in just recently. Nice. Let's well, let's talk about the uh, the morning show. People can check that out online, right? You do that every Friday. Yeah. Well, I'm on the air every weekday morning from seven to ten, and you can check that online at uh, the live stream at uh, www.1340thewhale.com. When you go to the website, you can also if you can't listen to it live you can also listen to the uh, the podcast of the friday morning show as well as the whale jam now the friday morning show is called the friday morning fishbowl and boy that started out a few years ago as uh, well uh, the boss came down to the control room on a friday morning he just wanted to be on the air wanted to hang out and so we did that for the 9 a.m hour after a while he started inviting our sales guy at the time who's a, an already an accomplished entertainer, uh, Mr. Entertainment, Jack Hamilton. And so the three of us would be, you know, shooting the bull there. Uh, and then eventually we added John. So four guys, you know, just uh, shooting the breeze for an hour. It was like the view. And I was Elizabeth Hasselbeck. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, it was three guys and, and me. <laughs> so <clears throat> at one point, and uh, the boss said we should promote the hour. It's its own show. And it became the Friday morning fishbowl. Now, since then, the show has undergone a number of personnel changes. We've had a couple of uh, women come and go. But right now, the program is is just John and I until we can find that uh, elusive third leg to our bar stool. <laughs> and uh, tell us about the show. You obviously play some music in between banter you have trivia what other and you just talk about news and other items yeah we uh, you know aside from music and we try to do we try to play during the program some on some clips that you some songs that you don't necessarily hear on a regular basis or just just fun new stuff i mean when was the last time you heard uh, prefab sprouts the king of or, or uh, the king of rock and roll yeah no i can't say <laughs> yeah prefab prefab sprout right or some dread zeppelin going back to them uh, and so we, 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 we play some, uh, 
some music. We occasionally get the the newer material. Just a couple of weeks ago, we played. Oh gosh, it was the uh, Reputation, the nineteen seventy seven. I want to say demo track that Kiss did. Oh okay, yeah. Yeah, previously unreleased. They got that fortieth anniversary uh, double LP thing that came out just a couple of weeks ago, and one of the tracks on there was this previously unreleased demo. So we that's the kind of thing we'll play as well. But uh, oh yeah, and a lot of uh, a lot of Canadian rock and roll. For some reason, I've got this this thing for Canadian classic rock. But uh, yeah, we do. Uh, we've got music trivia, entertainment news. We've got a couple of I, I guess they're kind of contests or or. Uh, not really contest, more like a competition, an ongoing competition. Two of them. One's Factor Bull, in which I present John with a number of statements about whatever. You know, it could be sports figures, adult film models, what have you. A number of statements, usually 10 per week. And he has to tell me whether these are Factor Bull. He doesn't do too well. <laughs> Yeah, I've listened to a couple of those. <laughs> yeah, un- unless they involve sports figures or adult film models. He's, <laughs> he's pretty much clueless. Uh, the other one we do, we do at the back end of the show. It's called Stump the DJ. And during Stump the DJ, and we 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 alternate between who's the stumper and who's the stumpy. We'll play, we'll try to get a theme for the week. So let's say it's, oh, let's say it's sunny outside on that particular Friday. So the theme may be sun. So sun has to appear in either the name of the song or the name of the artist or band performing. And you got to give a complete answer. You can't just can't do it half-assed. Sure. We'll go through maybe, you know, 10 songs. And can I tell you what? I am the king of Stump the DJ. Yeah. (laughs) Matter of fact, to this day, uh, my niece who uh, my, my, my sister's family listens to the show on Fridays and my niece loves stump the DJ. And when I do see her, she wants to do stump the DJ with me, Yeah, (laughs) but she loves country music and she is more attuned to current country music than I am. I can't remember anything past say, I don't know, 1995. Yeah. Yeah. So she tries to, to nail me on stump that on our little own personal stump, the DJ, she does a great job at it. <laughs> she's your nemesis. <laughs> yes. Yes, she is. She's, she's my sweet nemesis <laughs> with all these duties at the radio station. What do you enjoy most? Okay. Commercial production. And why is that uh, interesting to you? Well, this goes back to my education in music and something that happens or happened during the Baroque period, it's called text painting, where you take words and the music that you put to it, and it's, it's almost like a harmony all by itself. You can convey ideas and emotions through the text painting. Okay, great example here. If you have an ad for a funeral home, are you going to put carnival music behind it or something somber? You're yeah. going to put something a little somber or at least serious behind it. Yeah. So yeah, commercial production. That's, that's, I think first and foremost for me. And I've, I've done God, so many commercials. Uh, I was at one time part of a group called the international broadcasters idea bank, which is a group of station owners and managers from across the globe. And we had all, we had this voice exchange where people could 
you know, I, I get a, I would get a, a fax or an email from a station in Chicago saying, I need this voice for this, you know, we're doing a county fair. So all you do is to the, the dry read, the dry voice, email it off, and that stuff would get produced. You usually get a, a copy back. I've done commercials for stations all over the country. And this is the fun thing, uh, at least for me. Back in 1990, 1990 or 1991, I was uh, the recipient of the, of the broadcasters group Ibby Award. They gave it out to one person every year for excellence in broadcasting. So I'm actually a, an award-winning broadcaster. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And now, another home improvement adventure with the Gomers. Today, the Gomers are doing electrical work around the house. Honey, did we blow a fuse again? No problem, dear. And I've got just the tool for the job. What is that? I call it the Fuse Buster 3000. Made it myself. It'll fix that pesky fuse box in a jiffy. I'll just head down to the basement and... Guess you should have gone to Sevo's Hardware and Equipment Rental in Anacortis, dear. Do you think they have flashlights, too? For your next home improvement project, don't be a goer. Just head to Sevo's Hardware and Equipment Rental in Anacortis. They have everything you need for your next electrical project. Sevo's Hardware and Equipment Rental, 1102 Commercial Avenue in Anacortis. Stay tuned for the next exciting adventure of home improvement with the Goers. What advice do you have somebody that's interested in getting into uh, a career in radio or voiceover work? Well, first, become very proficient with computers. Very proficient. Pretty much everyone, from on-air host to the person that's scheduling the commercials, they have to use computers on a daily basis. Have to become very familiar with them. Uh, second... If you want to be on the air, learn to sight read. Stations won't hire on-air talent if they can't read. I've, I've had the uh, experience of working with more than a few people who were hired for, you know, say, news gathering ability. But once they got on the air, they would read one sentence at a time. <laughs> yeah. Or, or just couldn't read, period. So, yeah, computers first. And learn to sight read. Back, back at KXLE, once I got hired, my boss, Rich, he appreciated, and, I, and I, I thank him to this day for that, he appreciated that I was a jazz musician. I could sight read, which is you know first and foremost with, with music. I could sight read, I could improvise, and I knew the value of dead air. And yeah. so after he hired me, he surrounded himself with a production staff it was all jazz musicians. He, he, uh, he understood the formula and went, okay, well, if it works for Glenn, it's got to work for everybody else. And it did. Okay. So computers, sight reading and anything else? Self-motivation. Really? I, I've seen a lot of people go through, you know, in and out the door, so to speak, who just, you know, are there to spin the wheels and out the door. And, and, and so few people, uh, that I've had a, you know, worked with on occasion, uh, you know, we're just self-motivated. It's hard to find somebody who is self-motivated. So that, that is very important. And that's true with any job, really. I mean, people are looking for, for somebody who can, you know, take care of stuff on their own without having to be poked and prod and reminded of. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know as far as uh, musicians and music goes, if you just show up for the gig when you're supposed to, that's yeah. half the battle right there. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is a question we like to ask everybody on the show, and this gets back into music. What does music mean to you? Mm, it's the great communicator. Uh, reading a book or a newspaper, yeah, that's a personal thing. It's, you know, you, you pick up a book, it's talking directly to you. Same with a newspaper or a magazine or any other print media. Music, on the other hand, it's got the ability to speak to thousands at the same time. And it's a great way of conveying emotion, which gets back to, uh, you know, talking about music theory. It's a great communicator. Talking about music, what bands are you? You've already mentioned uh, St. Lucia. What, what other music are you listening to that maybe people should be aware of? Great question. You know, being in the entertainment industry for so many years between playing in bands and doing the radio thing, I've heard a lot of music from a lot of genres. And, you know, working at a music format, a radio station, I end up hearing a lot of mainstream music every day. So when I'm off the clock, I get drawn to bands that you don't necessarily hear on the radio. And for me, the quirkier, the better. These days, I'm listening to a lot of Canadian classic rock groups like Prism, Chilliwack, Trooper, and and like I mentioned before, a lot of Kim Mitchell, who rocks, by the way. Uh, there's an old band mate of mine who plays drums for Fits in the Tantrums. Have you heard of those guys? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm really digging their sound. They've only got two albums out, and at this point, you can't listen to a movie soundtrack or, or flip on a TV and, and go through a commercial break without hearing some of their music. I mean... Major bank is what they're making. Hmm. They've got a great sound. Um, another cool band, Tally Hall. They're um, out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Bunch of young guys. If you get a chance to check out some of their material, Banana Man springs immediately to mind. I'm also really digging the stuff by That One Guy. Yeah, look him up. That, the number one guy. Uh, one of his, I think, best tracks is called Butt Machine. <laughs> All he's right. yeah he's, he's he's one of these guys that uh, he's a, a former classical bass player and he has this contraption that he created it's basically a pvc pipe with a with one bass string and midi triggers all over it mm. so what you hear when you listen to that one guy it's all it's all one take there's no multi track mm. and he's got this this voice uh it's oh it's incredible um, let's see when I'm in a reggae mood, Dread Zeppelin, I mean, they're my go-to guys. Uh, when I'm feeling for a little bit of punk, there's one album that I go to. It's the 1979 album called bad habits by a group called the monks out of England. Yeah. 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 Early, early punk. Uh, I guess today it would be more, uh, uh considered punk pop, yeah. but but back in the seventies, you know, you listen to like early police or, um, uh, the musical project that, uh, Stuart Sting and Andrew did before the police called strontium 90. It's, it's all that kind of stuff. Bad habits by the monk that bunks. That's, uh, I mean, songs like, uh, Oh, uh, nice legs, shame about her face, or I'm not getting any, or their theme, uh, Skylab, Skylab. <laughs> Yeah, I got to check that stuff out. Um, every Friday, for example, is we call it Funk Funk Friday at the House of Harris, and that's when I dig out some old school funk, Parliament, Funkadelic, uh, Bootsy Collins. 
along with some newer stuff like Dumpstuff Funk. That's uh, Ian Neville's band, Aaron Neville's son, and he oh, plays yeah. yeah along with it's Ian Neville and his cousin, two bass players in the band. Oh man, <laughs> um, that is some serious funk. They're considered the best uh, funk band to come out of New Orleans. And then there's Funkenstein, which is this over-the-top Parliament-like band out of Tel Aviv, Israel. Oh, interesting. Israeli funk. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's it is a thing to behold. And of course, uh, you know, any day is a good day for some Frank Zappa. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that guy was a genius. <laughs> what interests do you have outside of uh, music? What other hobbies do you have and enjoy with all of your free time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. With all my free time. I have such just this wide open calendar. Okay, uh, in no particular order. Reading. I read like five books at the same time. I've got them spread out throughout the house. Wow. Uh, vary, varying subjects. Uh, mead. Love the mead. Uh, quantum mechanics is a, uh, a bit of an interest of mine. And I also collect swords. Oh, tell us about your favorite sword. Well, I'm, I'm building a katana collection at the moment. I've got two really nice ones, including a... Uh, uh, Mount Fuji Katana with a 14-inch Suka. But uh, I think my favorite of those would be a sword I inherited from my grandfather. When he passed away, I got this samurai blade. It must be 250 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, uh, uh, my grandfather owned and ran an auto parts store, the first auto parts store in East Bremerton, Washington. And one of his longtime customers was this Japanese American man. He, he, or I should say he was a Japanese man who moved to America and I was there as a, I'm a talking little kid. He, he was, I was there when this guy showed up to the shop and said, for years of great service, I wanted to present you with, with this. And it was his family's sword. Now it didn't have a, a hilt or a, uh, uh, or a Suba on it. So it was just the, just the bare blade. And the, uh, the the metal for the hilt, but my grandfather he thanked him for it, and just like with my grandfather's gun collection, you know, said thanks and then stuck it in his closet hmm. and forgot about it. And after my grandfather passed away, my grandmother gave me this this beautiful, you know, two hundred and fifty year old sword, which is. It's it's weather worn. It's discolored, but it's still razor sharp. Mm. Uh, the uh, folks at the oh gosh, the International Museum down in Seattle. They, I asked them one day, could you help me decipher, translate the kanji that's on this blade, so I can because because the kanji on a samurai sword will tell you on one side when it was made and where, and the other side will tell you who made it. And so I sent them the kanji, and they said, "Oh well, you know, we would love to help you out, but but first you have to donate the sword to the museum." Yeah. <laughs> well, that isn't going to happen. Yeah. So yeah, I I ended up uh, uh, hopping on Facebook and asking some friends of friends to translate it for me, and it turns out it was about two hundred fifty years old. Wow. Yeah. Very yeah. impressive. That's very yeah. Cool. Well, I'll tell you what. That's the first thing I'm gonna gonna break out when the zombie apocalypse comes. That. <laughs> That and my guns. I am yeah. sticking to my guns. <laughs> so what is next on the horizon for Glenn Harris? What projects you got lined up? What, what's going on in your world? Well, hard to say. You know, in the radio business, 
anybody can be replaced. So, you know, someday I can find myself doing something completely different to pay the bills. You know, a few years ago, I was one of a handful of guys that voiced the audio version of Business Week magazine. Hmm. Kind of an early version of a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is long before audio podcasts came about. And since then, I've been slowly building up a home studio for myself in hopes that I can get back into the voiceover business. So I hope that once my usefulness in radio is exhausted, I can support my family doing VO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Maybe uh, get into audiobook recording. That would be cool. That would be nice. Yeah, yeah I, uh, one of the guys that was doing Business Week with me lives out on Guimas Island, just a, just a stone's throw away here from Anacortes. He used to be the booth announcer for the ABC radio network. And now he is doing a lot of audiobooks. He's retired. He's 70. He's doing a lot of audiobooks. And so I've been trying to tap him for some leads, but he's he's playing that close to the vest. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, it, it really does come down to to who you know when it comes to getting back into the VO business. Starting out is is a pain in the ass, but getting back into the business is even tougher. Oh wow. Yeah. Where can we uh, go to find out more about the uh, radio station and about you? Well, let's see. Uh, the As I mentioned, the radio station's website is 1340thewhale.com. We've got streaming audio plus podcasts of the most recent Whale Jam and Friday Morning Fishbowl. Uh, as for me, I, I don't yet have a personal website. Uh, I used to have a couple of blogs. But guess what? I couldn't get many visitors, no matter how eloquent my prose. <laughs> so, um, yeah, right now I do have a YouTube channel and I'm on Facebook and Google plus. And for each of those, you just search for Glenn Harris. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, thanks Glenn for being on the show. Uh, any last words? Oh gosh. Let's see. Uh, never refreeze deep sea bass. <laughs> uh, whenever possible, use plastic. And avoid interfering in the affairs of dragons, for they find you crunchy and are great with ketchup. (laughs) Well, very good. Words of wisdom. Thank you very much, Glenn. Oh, Dan, I appreciate it, man. It's it's been so fun to reconnect with you. All right. Thanks, Glenn. All right. Hey, uh, you know, Music Life Radio, where the music is free and Dan's still not wearing any pants. (laughs) Exactly. the wrong time and the wrong place though your face is charming it's the wrong face it's not her face but it's such a charming face and it's all right with me it's the wrong song and the wrong style though your smile is lovely it's the wrong smile it's not her smile but it's such a lovely smile and it's all right with me oh you can't know how happy i am that we've met i'm strangely attracted to you you see there's somebody i'm trying so hard to forget i bet you want to forget somebody too it's the wrong game with the wrong chips though your lips are perfect they're the wrong lips they're not her lips but they're such perfect lips and that's all right with me
that we've met I'm strangely attracted to you You see there's somebody I'm trying so hard to forget I know you want to forget somebody too Oh it's the wrong game with the wrong chips Though your lips are perfect they're the wrong lips They're not her lips but they're such perfect lips And some night you're free Well it's alright, it's alright with me all right that's vance palm and the cross current orchestra thanks again to my guest glenn harris it's great to reconnect with that guy after so many years thanks for tuning in to music live radio and we'll catch you next time